Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to serve in this small church. Thank you for the men and women who are serving. And for those who have come, Father, to hear and to, and to be served. And perhaps one day, Father, we'll turn around and serve as well, Father. That's the pattern we all know so well. Seasons in our life when we have been called into faith, called to receive, called to learn, called to grow. And then when the timing is right, Father, you'll give us the opportunity to take all that we've received and uh, pour it back into someone else's life as we serve in what we've been given. And that, that cycle, Father, of receiving and serving others is exactly what you've called us to do in, in glorifying the name of Christ in, in among the nations so that as they see our love for one another and as they see our service and our heart for, for you and for your people, that that would inspire perhaps in some, Father, a desire to know more and to be a part of what you bring uh, together by your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for the blessing that it is to be part of a community like this community. I also thank you, Father, for um, granting us the service and wisdom of teachers. Uh, I am but just one in a line of people, Father, that you have brought into this church over several decades now, men and women who have a heart to know and to teach your word, to handle it rightly, to concern themselves with what it says. And uh, not just in the teaching of it, Father, but more importantly, in the living of it. And sometimes, Father, when you sit in something for a long time, you get the benefits of something for a long time, it starts to become the norm. It starts to become something you can take advantage of, take, take for granted, perhaps even overlook. Father, I just ask that in, in the way you stimulate our hearts and desires, Father, that you would never let it become just an everyday experience. That every time we have the privilege to sit at your feet and listen to your word taught, Father, let it be something important in our hearts, too. So that the moment... Uh, is something that we should cherish. And I ask, Father, that like every moment, that you would let this morning be one of those times where we would not take for granted that we listen to the Word of God. For many have longed to do so, Father, and many have not had the chances we've had. And uh, all the more reason, Father, why we should be thinking of how we can take what we've learned and put it to work. And let that be the result this morning as well. As we go into your Word this morning, Father, we ask the Spirit would teach us, as He always does, and that our hearts would be prepared to hear it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're turning back now into the hidden story of end times, which is found in the book of Ruth. Last time we studied the first part of chapter 2, looking at it for its first story, as I call it, that story of Ruth and Naomi, and then a new character, Boaz. Let's go back into that chapter. I'm going to reread verses 1 through 13, which is what we did last time. But as I said, now we're going to look at the story from another angle. We're sort of turning it over, and we'll see what it says about the end times. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Ruth. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose side I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reaper replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, 
Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. It's still just as tender the second time as it was the first, right? Naomi and Ruth returning to the land. Remember we said they've come in at the time of harvest, that we learned that in chapter 1, as a result of nine years outside the land, now coming into the tenth year. That also gave us the indication that this is a year of testimony to follow all that time of judgment. And as they arrived, Ruth began to seek support for herself and for Naomi by gleaning, by working in a field, just collecting the leftover grain that might still be on the ground. And as we learn, she goes into this one field that happens to be the field of one of her family's relatives, a kinsman, Boaz. And after spending all day gathering that leftover grain for herself and for Naomi, Ruth meets Boaz. And when that happens, we see this great kindness extended from Boaz toward Ruth. And in the process, he commits something to her. He commits to protecting her as she goes about this gathering. And of course, we've already studied how Ruth pictures the Gentiles uh, of the world, the Gentiles of the church, and how they're attracted to the God of Israel uh, as the scriptures promised would happen. And then last lesson we saw how Ruth's time gathering in the field is a reflective of the time that we spent in the world, so to speak, the field being a world and the way scripture often uses the metaphor. In fact, Matthew 13, Jesus refers to the world metaphorically as a field. So we sought our provision working in the world, but it was a work without hope. Ruth is working in the field. She's gaining some measure of success. But what she can't get through her own work is what she desires most, which is security, rest. And then all of a sudden in verse 6 out of nowhere, Boaz appears and he gives her the opportunity for that security and rest that she couldn't have found in her own effort despite working as hard as she did. And then as we looked at the text a little further, the next detail we notice is the way that Boaz establishes this new relationship between himself and Ruth. And that detail offers us the first opportunity this morning to start drawing some parallels between the events of this chapter, of this account, and God's plan for Israel and the church in later days, in the days that we've progressed through already and are coming upon soon. Now, as you probably already know, and I'm sure I'm not giving this away to anybody in the room, the kinsman redeemer in this story, Boaz, is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that is news to you, then don't worry. We're going to develop this idea more fully through the rest of the book. But suffice to say for now, Boaz serves as our picture of Christ himself. 
He's the hero. He's the one who's going to rescue Naomi and Ruth from their circumstances. And through the relationship, we're going to learn something also about the way God prepares a bride for his son, Jesus. We noted already that Ruth is a Gentile. And having been drawn into Boaz's field, not by chance, but by the Lord's hand, luck had nothing to do with it. Her choice had nothing to do with it. The field was intended by God for Ruth. He planted her there and he brought Boaz in at just the right moment. We studied all that last week. And then we noticed that the relationship between Ruth and Boaz began, not because Ruth took note of Boaz, but because Boaz took note of Ruth. Before Ruth was even looking for a Boaz, Boaz found her. And then, of course, between them was the servant of Boaz who introduced Ruth to Boaz. That servant pictures the Holy Spirit in the role that he has in bringing us, the church, into a knowledge of Jesus, our Redeemer. So at this point, in our second story, let's take an inventory of what we know. We have Christ, pictured by Boaz, having introduced himself to his future bride, Ruth, who pictures the Gentile church. And even before Ruth is aware of Boaz, you have Boaz now making plans for Ruth. He begins his conversation, you notice, by calling her my daughter. That is, he welcomed her into his household. Secondly, he gives her access to his field indefinitely without condition. Third, he makes her one of his maids. And a maid, as you know, is a female equivalent of a servant, of a male servant in the household. Fourth, Boaz tells her to work with the other servants who will protect her and care for her needs. And when we looked at all this last time, we noted that all of these grants from Boaz were a measure of grace to Ruth. And you can clearly see in all of these points a picture of what happens to believers in the church as we enter into our relationship with Christ. The very same grants are all there. He gives us, as you know, grants of protection and provision and privilege and it comes as a consequence of his grace to us not for anything we did to earn it it comes in a manner and at a timing of his choice we simply have him show up in our life when we weren't even looking for him but notice things that we didn't talk about last week for example notice it comes with an expectation of service did you catch that notice boaz made ruth a servant a maid in the house. He didn't award her a bundle of cash, which he could have done, so that she would never have to work again, right? He knows her situation. She needs a provision. But he doesn't just show up and say, here, here's all the money you need. Go buy yourself some food and, uh, you know, just go sit on the couch in the afternoon and play Xbox and eat a box of Oreos and you don't need to do anything anymore. I'm your sugar daddy. Everything is good here now. If you think about it to its logical conclusion, If the goal for Boaz was to support a woman in need, why didn't he just go to that ultimate outcome? He doesn't do that. He still expected her to work every day as a servant in the field. He just made the work easier. He made the work rewarding. But there was still work. That is the call, friends, of every disciple of Jesus. Just like Ruth in the story, we're Ruth, we're the church, we're the Gentile church. When Christ called us in, to the faith that he granted us, he called us also to work to serve the master who bought us, who came and found us. And he did that with protection, with provision, with privilege. And that's why serving him is easy compared to the work we knew before. Just as Ruth was working harder for less in the field, now she's working easier for more. 
And I'm not talking here strictly about the work of going to an office or going to some other setting and earning a living. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. We'll do that regardless. The point is it stops being the focus of our life. It stops being the meaning of life. It stops being the fulfillment of life. It simply becomes a means to another end. Instead, our focus becomes a work of spiritual things for a God who rewards us elsewhere. As John said in 1 John 5, 2, By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Today, prosperity teaching, and you know what I'm referring to, I assume, the kind of heresy that exists out there that says that God wants us to be rich and happy in this life and is prepared to grant us riches should we just do a few things that he expects us to do. Or Usually it involves paying some pastor a lot of money in order to obtain that money for yourself. I think the heresy should be self-evident when it says you have to give away a lot of money to become rich. That doesn't make much sense, does it? The central error of that heresy is in overlooking that God has purposely left us in a state of need so as to motivate us to serve Him. He didn't dump cash on Ruth. He doesn't do that for us. He says, continue in your work. Let me make it easy and purposeful for you. The work comes with promises. It comes with a provision of rest. We will have rest from the worries of eternity, from the worries of sin and judgment, from that endless race of trying to seek to please men. You know, the rat race, the treadmill we all talk about. So often people work thinking that that work will find satisfaction because they're seeking to please the wrong audience. First and foremost, themselves, but then secondly, men. But you have to work nonetheless. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me so I can put a yoke on you. He doesn't say, come to me so I can take all of everything away. He says, come to me so I can exchange the weary, burdensome work you've been doing for a new yoke that's easy, light, rewarding. Christ assured us that our service will be rewarding, both now and in eternity. Back to the story, Boaz responded to Ruth's question. You know, she asked that question we said last week, has no answer. Why did I receive grace? I mean, by definition, it's unmerited. You can't justify it, but you can't explain its purpose. And when she asked the question, Boaz told her in verse 11 that he had observed her actions, and based on that, he wanted to do something in response. And he mentions three things that Ruth had been known to do, had been observed to do, and they all have parallels to Christ and the church. First, he says he notices Ruth's association with Naomi. Now, we, we know already that Naomi pictures Israel, the Jewish mother in this case. She pictures Israel. She's widowed, she's under judgment, she's seeking rest in her land, just like the Israel of today. Every believer enters into a relationship with Christ because of Israel, ultimately, We could say, in a sense, Jesus comes to us, like Boaz came to Ruth, because of his relationship to Israel. Why was Boaz taking such an interest in Ruth? Because he says he's heard of what Ruth had done in taking care of Naomi. Naomi and Boaz are relatives. And in the same sense, why do we know Christ? Because of Christ's relationship to Israel. Because of Him being the Jewish Messiah. But because of Him being the fulfillment of Scripture. Because He is the covenant-keeping God. Then secondly, Boaz says 
that he has heard of Ruth's willingness to leave her family. Just as it would have been impossible for Ruth to ever know Boaz without first leaving behind Moab, similarly, it is the same for every disciple of Jesus. Your opportunity to know and follow Jesus begins, the scriptures say, with a call to repent and to leave behind the world and its values and its priorities. You have to turn from something to receive something new in this case. John 17:16, Jesus says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That reference to the world is the ways of the world, the world of unbelievers, the way they think, the way they prioritize, the way they value certain things, their whole outlook on life and all that it contains. You were, and I were all once part of that by faith. We turned from it and came to something new in Jesus. Sometimes that's going to mean literally distancing yourself from unbelieving people, like family members, for example. That is to say, if they force you to make that choice between them and Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew 10:37, He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But that's not the norm. I know that happens. But it's not the norm. I think it's not the most common experience. What's most common, I think, is leaving behind the things of the world, the earthly accomplishments or the seeking of them, leaving behind earthly pursuits, earthly identities, and doing so so that we may live in a way that pleases Christ. The Apostle Paul, you might think of him as an example for a moment, prior to coming to faith when he was just Saul of Tarsus, he had as much to lose by becoming a disciple of Christ as anyone of his day. And yet, here's what he said about that loss, the inevitable loss that came as a result of him coming to Christ. He says in Philippians 3, 7, Whatever things were gained to me, that is to say those things of the world, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So Paul said he was willing to trade everything, and he had so much to trade. He was a man of prominence, of accomplishment, of respect, of power, of wealth. And he said, I don't want any of that anymore if it means I can have Christ instead. And not just for the sake of being pious, but because in Christ is great reward. Unimaginable reward in the kingdom, according to what Paul says elsewhere. So it's not a fool's bargain by any stretch. As the saying goes, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Paul is talking about here. And Ruth is a perfect picture of that. Ruth traded everything she knew in Moab to gain something she had never seen before. She had no idea what was coming on the other side of that borderline. So it must have been a difficult choice for her in earthly terms, and yet she made that choice. It's got to be the same for us today. You have to let go of this world so that you can take hold of what God has waiting for you in heaven. Faith is the means by which that happens. But not everyone who is of faith in Christ will ultimately make the choices necessary to fully realize what is available to them by letting go of this world. There's a lot of us, and I guess to some degree all of us, try to keep one foot in both worlds. I mean, obviously by the physical nature of our existence, we must be in this world. But we don't have to be of it. We can live like an ambassador, which is what Paul calls us to do in 2 Corinthians 5. We literally carry a mindset that says, I'm living in a foreign place. I don't have roots here. I'm not putting down too much roots in this community. I'm here to represent another place. And at all times, I carry myself like I'm a stranger from another place. 
in a helpful way, in an ambassadorship, not in some kind of arrogant way, obviously. That's a hard thing to do because it means it all turns as the enemy puts something in your path and says, wouldn't you like to have this again? Wouldn't you like to enjoy the fruits of the world in this area of your life or in this area of your life? You've got to make a conscious choice. Is that consistent with serving Christ or is that getting in the way? Is it dissipation? Is it pride? Is it the ego or is it truly useful for Christ? Finally, Boaz commends Ruth for attaching herself to a people she didn't know. You know, Ruth, in a sense, throws her lot in with Naomi and with the Jewish people. She doesn't know what it's going to be like on the other side. In fact, she's pretty sure it's not going to be a great existence because here's a widow with no way to make a living and no family left, etc. That's not the high probability of riches and reward. And yet she becomes one of them. Why does she do that? Well, we were told earlier she does it strictly because she wants to know Yahweh and this is the only way she knows to do that. And that pictures us again in the church, friends. Every Christian, Paul says, has been grafted into the promises God gave to Israel. In a sense, you and I have thrown our lot in with Israel just as Ruth did with Naomi. Because if it were the case that what the Israelites, what Jews, what the Bible is teaching were not true, we have no backup plan. Now clearly that's not a concern. We know that. But what I'm saying is, in the same way that Ruth said, I'm going over that border, I'm going to be a Jew, I'm leaving everything behind, if I'm wrong, I don't have a backup strategy. Similarly, as I like to say, there's no plan B for the Christian. Pagans love plan Bs. A little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of yoga, a little bit of this, and whoever's right, I'm covered. For Christ said, there is no other way with the Father but through Him. So to think that He is one of many is to say He is not who He said He was. We don't have that back out plan, nor do we need one. The point being, we have come to believe in the God of Israel, not any other God. We acknowledge there is only that one true God, the one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like Ruth, we have attached ourselves to the future of Israel by faith. We have not become Israel, but we are attached to them. And as we leave the world behind, you're going to find new rewards to replace the ones you once valued. You notice in verse 11, Boaz told Ruth, ultimately... The Lord's going to reward you. I know you're happy with what I just told you I'm going to do, and I'm happy to help you, but I'm not your ultimate source of reward. Your kindness will be rewarded by the Lord who sees what you're doing. My kindness, Boaz is saying, is really just a down payment on what God is prepared to do. And here again, friends, you have another parallel between Christ and His church. The promises Christ has given to us, they're merely a down payment. On a heavenly reward. We will have a measure of reward now in the sense of what God provides to us in our earthly life. Even to the effect of the Spirit in us. Paul calls that a down payment. A pledge to us. And all of this is a precursor to the ultimate reward of what we will receive in our glorified life. We'll have a sinless body. We'll have the full knowledge of God and the full presence of Him to enjoy. And we'll be in a kingdom with no sin in our body and the riches of Christ awarded to us out of His inheritance. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. I, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he would receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. It's easy to take those verses out of context and misuse them. But here's what he's saying. Turning from the world that 
putting aside the things of this world in order to know and follow Jesus, that's going to mean, in some cases, leaving behind family members, as he mentioned here, or he mentions farms. That's a way of saying the wealth of this world, what it is you have in this world. And he says, if you've done that because of your faith in Christ, he says, be assured, you will have a hundred times those things, even now. And of course, what he means by that is, well, I might have had, in my case, two brothers and a sister, none of whom are believers. And as a result, my relationships with them are very distant and strained as a result of my coming to faith and them not. Nevertheless, I see a room full of brothers and sisters. I have a world full of spiritual brothers and sisters. And that's what he means by a hundredfold. The kind of intimate fellowship that I can have with a believer exceeds anything, anything I've ever had with my two brothers and sister in earthly terms, even before I became a believer. And that's the promise of Christ here, that there'll be a kind of relationship within the body of Christ that supersedes anything we had before and, if necessary, replaces it where we don't have it elsewhere. And then he adds, and farms. And again, it's not a promise to earthly riches necessarily. It's a promise to the shared provision within the church. You know, there's things that you own in your home right now that I don't have. And perhaps there's things I'll never have because I couldn't afford it if I wanted it. But when the time comes, you know, when I have this desperate need for a two-door sports car. Or if I have a need for some tool, or I have a need for some accommodation, or I have a need for something else, that's going to be the perfect opportunity for someone to say, you know, Steve, use mine. Take mine. Stay with me. And vice versa, right? This is not a one-way street, obviously. All of us are working within the body collectively to bring supply to bear where they're needed. That's his point. His point is that even in the middle of this time, when we're losing things, we're gaining things that are much more useful to us. And we're doing it all within the body. And then ultimately he says, in the age to come we have eternal life. Now that's an odd phrase when you think about it, because for the most part we go around thinking ourselves already obtaining eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And certainly we have the promise of it. That's an assured certainty. That's our eternal security. But the reality of it is yet to arrive. And the best proof I can give you of that is you're going to die if the Lord doesn't return first. So the reality of eternal life is a promise that is certain and true because of your faith, but the arrival of it is still awaits someday in the future. And that's what he's saying. There'll be a day when the fullness of your eternal life, when you'll have the body, the land, the inheritance, all of that will be there. All right, so that's a recounting of what we did in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, now from the perspective of the church. We left off at verse 13. I want to go just a little further today. The next verse adds one more important parallel between these characters that we need to consider. Look at verse 14. Now they're still in the house. This is still the same moment. And it says, At mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. So Boaz ends their conversation with a meal. Now, in this day and age, meals had much greater significance, particularly in ancient Eastern culture, than meals for us tend to have today. It was very high honor for someone to host someone else in their home for a meal. And in fact, meals were commonly used to psalmize agreements or covenants, to put them into effect. But in our culture, you know, we don't even think of meals the same way anymore today. They're increasingly informal. You know, there used to be a time not all that long ago when families used to dress up for the evening meal. And I don't just mean on Sundays. People had to be dressed properly to come to the table and eat. This is probably, what, 50, 60 years ago now, but, you know, not ancient history, certainly. Today, we consider a meal to be formal if it's not served on a stick. (laughs) 
So you're lucky to get most of the family around the table once a week in a lot of families today. I finally came to realize that dinner as a meal had lost its significance to us as a culture when a friend of mine one time told me about a practice he has of eating dinner at Sam's Club or Costco. And he said he often gets a seven-course meal there. And I said, you know, last time I was in those stores, I don't remember there being a fine dining establishment inside. How are you getting a seven-course meal there? And he said, it's not a restaurant. He says he visits all the food samplers working the aisles in these stores. So he starts in the appetizer aisle. He moves to the soups and seafood, followed by barbecue and pizza. He finishes off with desserts and maybe the sports drink aisle. And he says, if you time your arrival at these places just right, you catch them on a shift change, and you can do the whole circuit a second time. They don't know you. Well, I heard that story. of like, okay, we're done with meals in, the, in our society now. We're, it's a sign of the apocalypse. We're eating it in the aisles at Costco, right? All right, back to this story. Meals in this day, though, were very important. And a meal was often the integral moment, the, the key moment, when you established a covenant. You can tell there's something important going on here When you look at the details, look in verse 14 again. At the end of 14, you notice that the evening meal consisted of what? Roasted grain. That was the actual food being served at the meal. They ate grain, it says. They were satisfied. She even had a little bit left over. But earlier in the verse, it says she had bread given to her, and she dipped the bread in vinegar. And the Hebrew word there for vinegar is a word that means literally sour wine. So... This is before the meal. This is not the meal. These are not appetizers, friends. This is a symbolic ritualistic moment that's taking place at the beginning of the meal. The meal itself is different. So we have to understand, what is this ceremony that's taking place in the beginning? This ceremony is the moment that seals the covenant that Boaz is giving to Ruth. This is the moment she is entering into the covenant and he is establishing it. Now, I don't have time to go into the background on covenants for us. We've done that here in the past at other times. But suffice to say, think of it like a contract, but much more solemn than what we do today when we sign contracts. The key difference being that in this day, a covenant was breakable only by death. Which is to say, it's a lifelong agreement, but if you broke the agreement before you died, they killed you. So you died either way. So it was only breakable by death. And so it was a very serious moment. You enter into a covenant with great care and forethought because of what it meant. And to seal a covenant, today we have a piece of paper, we sign it, or in fact it's electronic half the time now. But in that day, they didn't do it that way. It wasn't as convenient. What they did instead was they had a meal. They exchanged something like bread or salt or some other food. And in the exchange of it, here's the principle. The principle is we are going to be bound together in this agreement. And to signify our binding... I'm going to take something that was once a whole, like a loaf of bread, and I'm going to divide it, and some of it's going to go in your body, and some of it's going to go in my body, and symbolically it's like we're one body now because that bread is unifying us. It's just the idea. It's not magic. They're just a picture of us being one, united. They did a similar thing with salt. People used to carry salt around because salt was a very essential ingredient for life in a desert community and they'd have bags of salt and if you wanted to create a salt covenant it was called i would take a pinch of my salt and you would take a pinch of your salt and we put it in each other's bag and now it's mixed together no one knows whose is whose and we've united in that sense okay so when you wanted to signify a covenant being established you often did a meal and in this case that's what you see happening a covenant being inaugurated between ruth and boaz through this meal This is a lifelong binding obligation. It's only going to end with the death 
of those who make it. Some covenants place obligations on both parties, like contracts do today, right? There are other kinds of covenants, though, where only one person in the covenant has any requirements to do anything. And in this case, you can clearly see that this is a one-way covenant. Boaz has obligated himself to Ruth in the promises that he gave her a moment earlier. And Ruth has had nothing put on her. She has no obligations. She's not asked to do anything. She didn't have to work to receive it. He came to her before she even knew him with the plan to provide all these things to her. All the promises are one way, from Boaz to Ruth. And so what you see going on now, and this is significant if you think about it from Boaz's point of view, he is voluntarily entering into a lifelong binding promise to protect Ruth. All the things he said for her are lifelong. Clearly he's thinking beyond the current harvest season. He is determined there will be rest for Ruth the entire remaining life she has. When the harvest ends, when all the gleaning is done, Boaz is still committed to providing protection, provision, and privilege to Ruth because of this covenant. That's how he can say to her, that's how we can say, she has truly found rest. This is not momentary charity. He has made an agreement. So once again, in all of these details, you see markers that draw your attention to Christ and his Gentile church. Because just as Boaz found Ruth, Christ found us, and as he found us, he granted us these promises of protection, provision, and privilege. He sealed these promises in a one-way covenant in the blood of his sacrifice. And that covenant placed burdens on Christ, and it grants us privileges by grace. It comes with no conditions. As you entered into the covenant you have with Christ by faith, we call it the new covenant, as God describes it, you came as a function of things done for you by Christ to your benefit, not because of anything you did, not because of any obligations put on you, and there are no continuing obligations. Now, I'm not saying there is not an expectation of service and obedience, but that's not a condition. In other words, you cannot serve Christ, you cannot obey Christ, but the covenant that He made with you is not dependent on those things, it's dependent only on His faithfulness. And He who promises is faithful. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Which is why Paul expressed such confidence in his own future in Christ in Philippians, when he says in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.38, sort of the classic place we go for this. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does he say that? Because the nature of the relationship we have with Christ is based on a covenant And that covenant is binding to God. He cannot go against His own word. So, understanding that our covenant with Christ is based on His work and His faithfulness explains why we can use the term eternal security at all. Right? We aren't saying we're eternally secure because we somehow have the strength to ensure that outcome or even because of our forgiveness of sin. It's because our covenant with Christ is a one-way agreement. Just as Ruth could rest knowing Boaz has promised her things that he can't go back on, we can rest knowing Jesus has promised to return for us, to glorify us, and to give us an inheritance regardless of what might come between now and then. That's our source of rest. That's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then lastly, as we enter into this covenant, this new covenant, 
You notice we commemorate that routinely with a ceremony, with a meal ceremony, just as Boaz did for Ruth. And you know where I'm going with this, I hope. Boaz took Ruth aside after the agreement and he instructed her. You notice it says he told her to take the bread and he told her to dip it in vinegar. And as such, she is eating bread and wine as a way of commemorating, inaugurating, solemnizing this agreement. And of course, friends, we do the same thing. It pictures the church participating in the Last Supper meal. As Boaz instructed Ruth, so has Jesus instructed us, the church. And just as their partaking of bread and wine was a ritual, it was not a full meal, you notice, so our communion is just a ritual. It's not a full meal. I've seen some churches make a meal literally out of their communion celebration. I think they do this with the best of intentions, but they don't do it biblically correctly. They don't separate out any ceremony within it. They just call it the communion meal. That's not what God is looking for in our observance of it. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 11, if you're hungry, eat before you show up. It's intended to be ritual. It's intended to be a picture of something. So we're supposed to treat it very carefully. We eat bread and wine or grape juice in some cases to remember the covenant in Christ's body and blood. And that covenant brought us into this new relationship. Just as Ruth and Boaz are remembering what was said in their covenant, we do the same. In our case, our communion meal is actually a reenactment of the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples shortly before he died. And the reason that's done this way is because Jesus could not have put the entire church around that table in that moment. First of all, it wouldn't have fit. Secondly, we weren't born. I mean, there are clearly some, some big barriers to there. So he does it with a small group that represents us. And then he tells them, now you guys keep repeating this amongst yourselves until I come back, so that over time, everyone in the church gets a moment like this, at least once, and usually quite often. But there's yet one more detail that connects these characters and our story. Boaz's relationship with Ruth and this covenant meal, they take place during the barley harvest. That's what we said at the very beginning of this book. The barley season, the barley harvest happens in the spring. This is not a fall time. This is a spring time. And as it goes most years, the timing of the harvest tends to line up very closely to the observance of a particular spring feast, Passover. Therefore, on God's prophetic time clock, we can say that this moment between Ruth and Boaz is a picture of the start of the church age. That moment when Jesus inaugurated the covenant and brought the church into existence at Pentecost, all of that comes at the time of his death on the cross, which was the fulfillment of Passover. And it began a clock of sorts. The clock is is still going today. The church is still on the earth, obviously, and we're waiting for that time to eventually come to its end. But meanwhile, we're still in the period of Ruth and Boaz, if you will. It started at Passover in the spring at the barley harvest, and it continues to today. It started with the Last Supper meal. It continues today with us observing the same meal. That, friends, explains why, at this point in the story, Ruth is alone with Boaz. If you've been wondering about poor Naomi, I mean, you might have been tempted to think, why has Naomi not been allowed to enjoy some of these same benefits at the same time? Where's the protection promise from Boaz to Naomi? I mean, after all, he knows Naomi is in need. That's one of the reasons why he was willing to recognize Ruth was because of her kindness to Naomi. And yet, you don't see him reaching out to Naomi at this point in the story. It's a bit odd, in a way. And we know, of course, that Naomi represents the nation of Israel as a whole. So Naomi is not in the scene at this point, because in its prophetic parallel, the Jewish people largely do not join the church at the onset of its existence. We have the Jewish remnant, 
obviously, and still do today. But as a whole, the church is Gentile, like Ruth, not Jewish, like Naomi. In a sense, you could say, currently, Naomi, the Jewish people, are still in the field of the world. They are still without Boaz. They are also without Ruth. They are alone, vulnerable, desperate, hungry, if you will, spiritually. God has left them there for a time while making a covenant with another individual, with the church. Ruth is secure. She's got this covenant relationship with the master of the house. This master, though, is a kinsman of Naomi. And just as our Lord is a Jewish Messiah, he is kinsman to all Israel. And that one-sided relationship goes on for a while, just as the age of the church lasts for a time. But you know where this is going, I'm assuming. Eventually, it comes time for the church to give way to a new time for Israel. And that new time will come at another harvest time. In Israel, there are two harvests, a spring and a fall. And as you may already know, the, the Jewish feasts center on those two times in the year. That's where we're going next time. As we finish two and enter into three next time, we're going to see where this age now transitions from the start of the church to the end of the church. And we'll begin to now look at some prophetic detail in the story that are not history, but are still yet future. And what God has planned for Naomi, even as he continues his work with the church. We'll see how that starts. But next week we're going to start with the first story again, the events of Naomi and Ruth in their own day as we move forward in the story. And I hope you'll be here for that. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, only your wisdom could put so much detail into such a simple story. That you foreknew these events and predestined them and put them into place. That you orchestrated lives years ago in a place far away so that in this day we could look at them and see them in, their full under, in a full understanding of what you are doing in the world. The way you can move lives, Father, to create the storylines that you need to tell us about you is just further evidence, Father, not only of your power and your wisdom, but of your love for us. And thank you, Father, for the story of Ruth and Boaz as it pictures us coming to know Christ. Thank you that you found us while we were working in the field of the world. Thank you, Father, that you promised us such great blessings before we even knew you. Thank you for sealing them with a covenant that's dependent only on your faithfulness. For, Father, if it were any other way, we'd have no rest. And thank you, Father, that... Um, we can know these things to share with others. For the day is still the day when men and women may come to know you by faith. And we ask, Father, for the privilege that it would be to be an instrument in your hands to bring someone to know you, perhaps even this week. Bring us back next week, Father. Let us continue in this study as we learn more. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.